Let's go. Uh, we're, we're going through Luke's gospel. We've made it to uh, Luke chapter 18. Just for a little bit of context, though, I'm going to start with the two verses at the end of chapter 17. Let's, let's with a sense of anticipation, stand for the reading of God's word. If you have a blue Bible like mine, this is found on page 850. And this is Jesus talking. Luke 17, verse 34. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. And one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what other people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my enemy. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I don't care what people think, yet because this woman keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, I love this next line, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. I mean, you talk about chutzpah. The Lord said, listen, to what the unjust says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And then to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, those people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or especially like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's powerful. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we have uh, two parables here, two uh, very different stories, but I think they're the same theme. Because in each parable, there is this plea for justice. And we don't right away see this because in our English, um, we have two words for the word justice or righteousness, and those are our words, justice and righteousness. 
But if we could read this in the original language, we would see that there's just one word here. Every time justice or righteousness is used, it's the same word or the same root word. And that word that we've translated justice or righteousness is almost in every verse of both these parables. The first parable is about a widow pleading for justice. And here's what we need to know, that in that world, a woman who was a widow was powerless. She had no rights. She had little value. She was at the very bottom. She had no leverage. And here comes this powerless widow to the one who has the power in her day, to a judge. And this is not just any judge, but this is a judge who doesn't have a merciful bone in his body. And she just pleads, and she begs him, please, please, she's pleading him for justice, for vindication. And Jesus says she finally gets it because she just pesters the daylights out of him. The second parable is also about two men who are pleading for justice. And this time, it just isn't before any judge, but it's before the judge. In this story, Jesus says one gets it, and the other doesn't. Now, I want to start with this. Why is Jesus telling these parables? Why, why are these parables in this particular place? It, it, it's a question you always have to ask when you're, when you're interpreting the Bible. Like, why is this here? And, and, and why is this here in this place? Well, if you ask me, I mean, just look at the, the, the verses previous to these parables. The, the, the disciples hear Jesus talking about the end. They... they he, they hear about people being taken. I mean, I, I, I literally hear like loud gulps as Jesus is telling that one will be taken and one will be left. And I see fright in their eyes. They're scared. They're scared about the end. They're scared about the great day of the Lord. They're scared about judgment day. And I was thinking about this this week. I, I feel that our time is very much like Jesus' time. We, we, we live in a time when, when our world is quaking and there's this growing fear. Christians more and more are afraid. And in light of this, there's increased discussion about, is this the end? And I think Jesus tells these parables to to pastor his disciples, to pastor us as we think about the end, which we need to be thinking about. And this first parable is an encouragement. It's an encouragement to disciples. It's, it's, It's an encouragement to us to not lose heart, as Jesus says. Don't lose heart, but pray. Because look at verse 7. And will not God bring about justice, righteousness for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I mean, if this powerless widow could get justice from an unmerciful, unconcerned judge, how much more will you, disciple, 
get justice from a merciful father. So ask for it. Beg for it. Plead to the judge of the earth for justice. Pastor him with your pleas. And not just please on, on our behalf, but, but, but please on the behalf of our world, please on the behalf of the lost, please on, on the behalf of our enemies, please on behalf of the underprivileged, because Christian, this is our calling in the world as we think about the end. Where our world is in pain, That's where Christians need to be in prayer. I love Isaiah 62. Because I think Jesus has this this verse in mind. Isaiah 62, verse 6. God says, I posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. And they will never be silent, day or night. And you will call on the Lord. Give yourselves no rest in that. And give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Day and night. Day and night. Pester him. Make pleas. And then I look at verse 8 in our text today. And God says, yeah, when the Son of Man comes, when when he comes to finally judge the earth, will he find faith on earth? In other words, if you want to know what faith looks like, faith is like this woman who day and night pesters the judge for justice. I wish that was our reputation in the world as Christians. I wish that when the world first thought about Christian, they didn't think about Democrat or Republican. They didn't think about politics. They... they, they, the first thing they thought is that, wow, Christians, wherever people are in pain, wherever our world is in pain, there they are, and they're just praying. And I think more and more today, what I'm, what I'm finding, with, especially with Christians in our part of the world, is that we're uncomfortable with this idea that God is a judge, a God who judges And especially this whole idea of a judgment day. And I think a lot of this is because when we think of judge or or judgment, we think of punishment. And then when we apply this to God, we think of this angry, vengeful God coming to, to punish the world. And while that won't be an aspect of it, when the Bible speaks of God as judge, who brings judgment... It's about a God who unleashes justice. And justice isn't a bad thing. Justice is a good thing. God's justice isn't just punitive. God's justice is restorative. When God executes his his justice, it's him making everything right again. Have you ever been unfairly treated? Have you ever been a a victim of injustice, whether it's at your work or at school 
maybe even in your own family, where, 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 you were just wronged. You know, this is so much a part of life. It's, it, it's so much a part of our world. This is why the psalmist is crying out in light of God's just, justice. How long, oh God, how long before you come and judge and execute your justice? In Psalm 96, it says, The heavens will be glad, the earth will rejoice, the fields will dance, the trees will sing, all creation will rejoice. Why? Because of what says next. God is going to come as the great judge and judge the world with equity. He's going to restore all things. He's going to avenge. He's going to vindicate. He's going to turn the tables. The humble are going to be exalted. The exalted are going to be humbled. And let me ask you this question. Who is that good news to? The humble. And see, now I think we're starting to feel a little bit of the warning side of of, of this parable because the person who gets the justice in this parable is a powerless widow. And at the end of uh, the second parable, God says, I oppose the proud, I give grace to the humble. Actually, that's not at the end of this parable, but it's close to it. (laughs) But that's all over the Bible because it's so God's heart. God says, I'm close to the, to the brokenhearted. I save those who are crushed in spirit. Over and over again, God shows us that he's for the powerless. He's for the marginalized. He's for the oppressed. He stands with them. And God will judge according to his heart. So if this warning is subtly expressed in the first parable, it's made painfully clear in the second parable. Jesus begins his parable and he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other ta- a tax collector. And I have to admit, I already feel frustrated. <laughs> Partly because our understanding of a first century tax collector is a little bit obscure. But more so because Christians have so demonized the Pharisees. Let me just start with this. A Pharisee in Jesus' day is not a grumpy, hypocritical, judgmental, piece of scum, phony. I know, that's what we think he is. In fact, the Apostle Paul, his whole life said, and I'm a Pharisee. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, the the, the two guys who took Jesus' body down from the cross and prepared it for burial, uh, both of those two guys were Pharisees. Josephus, the historian, tells us that the Pharisees were the most respected people in Jesus' day. So let me tell you, first of all, who they were socially. These guys are not the elites. They are not the upper crust. They're not even close to it. They're barely middle class. And it's not because they didn't work. But like the Apostle Paul, they were tent makers and carpenters and welders and masons. They're blue-collar guys for the most part. The white-collar religious leaders are the priests and Levites who work in the temple. The Pharisees are kind of like the the people's uh, leaders. Spiritually, does anybody know what the name Pharisee actually means? 
It means to separate. So in essence, they call themselves the separate ones. And the reason for this is because um, a couple of hundred years before Jesus, this massive culture war began to uh, occur. The, the, the Greco-Roman culture was just breaking in a culture that was uh, centered on, on selfish, me, sensuality, materialism. It was just invading their country. It's out of this that the Pharisees were born. These are the back to the Bible people. They're saying, come on, people. We got to get back to God's word. We got to know it so we can walk it so we can be faithful to him. Spiritually, also, these guys are charismatics. Some of them spoke in tongues. They're the ones who lift their hands during prayer. They're the ones who believe in the supernatural. They believe in healings. They believe in resurrection from the dead. They believe in the Ruach HaHodash, the the, the filling of a holy wind. Politically, these guys are pacifists. Yeah, they hated the Romans as much as anybody else, but unlike their zealot brothers who took up the sword and said we need to deal with the Romans that way, uh, the Pharisees, "Uh uh-uh, put the sword down. Let God deal with Romans. That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to be a faithful people to God. In fact, just a generation before Jesus, a pagan king who was trying to unleash this pagan culture in that part of the world, rounded up 800 Pharisees because they stood in the way. They were, they were so striving to be distinct. 800 of them. Crucified. Domitian style. Which means, as they hung there on, the, on, on these crosses, they brought out before them their wives and their children and slit their throats. The Pharisees were the most respected people in Jesus' day. In our day, it might be the equivalent of of, of someone who's just most respected in our community, respected here at church, someone who's committed to to the church, Um, probably a ministry leader who has a high view of the Bible, who prays all the time, who gives a lot of their money to the poor, who's pouring into others and making disciples. That's what a Pharisee was thought of in Jesus' day. And this tax collector, well, this is more than just a guy who works for the IRS. He is in bed with the enemy. He is a traitor who gets rich by betraying his own people. In that day, any tax collector is a total scumbag. So Jesus tells his story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. In fact, that whole uh, going up to the temple to pray, that that clause is actually technical language. It it, it means they're making aliyah, which would be the equivalent of us saying, uh, I went to church on Sunday for worship. These guys are attending the temple worship service. In Jesus' day, they had a 9 a.m. and a 3 p.m. service. In fact, the service included many of the same things that we have in our service. There was time of prayer. 
There was time of singing, led by the Levitical choir. The scriptures were read. But the high point of of, of a service, of a temple service, was when a priest would take out a lamb. And then in the most humane way possible, slit the ram's throat. The blood would be poured into a, a bowl collected, the bowl would be taken to the altar. It would be splashed on the altar because that altar represented the place on earth where heaven and earth connected. The incense would be poured over the sacrifice. The shofar would be blown. And in the silence, a priest would begin to pray, God, Make atonement for us. Make us clean so that we can draw near to you. And then following this, every worshiper in their own voice would start praying their own personal prayer aloud to God. Hundreds, thousands of voices all at once of people just praying Because the way now has been open to God. Now envision the parable in this context. Two men went up to the temple service. One a wicked man. Everyone knows it. The other a holy man. Everybody thinks it. And the service comes to this high point. The lamb is offered, the blood is splashed against the altar, the incense is poured over the offering, the smoke begins to rise up, then the loud shofar blast, everyone falls silent, then a priest prays into the silence, God may that lamb atone for us, may it cleanse us so that we could draw near to you. And then all of a sudden the whole congregation just breaks out in loud prayer. And here's a Pharisee. And he starts talking about his own righteousness and his superiority to other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like that person or that person or those people. God, look at me. I pray. I give. I fast twice a week. This guy is so overcome with his own self-righteousness that he's oblivious to his desperate need for atonement. I think most of us in this room know what a dangerous thing it is to be a sinner. But how many of us know what a dangerous thing it is to be a righteous person? Because the moment we start thinking that we've become acceptable to God because of anything that we have done, we've missed it. We've missed Him. Because God makes it painfully clear 
that, that his heart is drawn towards the sinful, the broken, the outcast, the excluded. God sides with sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came to call sinners. Jesus says, I eat with them. I dine with them. I do life with them. I call them. Which should be a huge warning to all of those who are righteous right now. As righteous people, we, we, we stand in danger of sliding down this slippery slope where we begin to trust our own goodness, where we become our own savior, where we become confident that we can earn God's approval. And you put all this together and it gives birth to this insidious thing called pride. The very thing that God opposes, he detests it. In fact, in Jesus' day, to, to, to guard against falling down this, this slippery sl- slope, they developed this concept called kavanah. Kavanah, they said, is the genuine intention of one's heart. It's this idea that it doesn't matter how, how, how good I am, how righteous I am. If my heart is not in it, it's worthless. If my heart's not in worship, it's worthless. If my heart isn't in prayer, it's worthless. If my heart isn't in my serving, it's worthless. I think this Pharisee forgot about the importance of Kavanah. That righteousness starts with our heart. That worship and prayer and serving God and, and, and loving God, it's, it's, it's all about our heart. God says man looks at the outward appearance, but God says I look at the heart. In our heart's intentions. And see what this Pharisee did is he replaces inside out heart righteousness with outside in righteousness. And if you want to know what outside in righteousness is, it's... It, it's It's a righteousness that's obsessed with appearance. What other people see, what other people think. It's obsessed with performance. This idea that we can earn God's approval by performing well enough for him. And at the end of the day, it's an obsession with self. I exalt God only because it exalts me. I worship God because it's a way for me to worship me. I serve God only to the extent that it serves me. In fact, I'm going to pick on something right now, which includes me. And I could be wrong right now. Because I ask this question all the time Who are you and what are you doing here? And I've noticed that I've fallen into this and many Christians have fallen into this almost obsession with our, our identity in Christ. Which is important. We need to emphasize our identity in Christ because when we know that we're in Him and that when we're in Him, we're, we're, we're sons 
and were his bride. I guess this is exalting. But could it be that we could take that too far where who I am in Christ is all about I, me? Causing me to just think about me all the time. God, I thank you that I'm a saint and not a sinner. God, I thank you that I'm a son and not a scumbag. We have to be careful. Because being proud is much worse than being a tax collector. Pride is the most damning of sins. Nothing repulses God more than pride. And look at this tax collector. Jesus said he stands afar off. That would be the equivalent of him just kind of slipping in the back row. It's like he almost sneaks into the service. And then at the sight of that lamb being offered and its blood poured out, he beats his breast. This is what people did in Jesus' day who were just in extreme anguish. In fact, the only time this is mentioned again in the Gospels is when Jesus is crucified in Luke 23, verse 48. It says, when the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. They were just in utter anguish. And as this tax collector beats his breast, he prays from his heart, God, have mercy on me. Now, I hate to be this guy, but this is not a good translation of what he prayed. Most literally, what he prays. He prays, God, make atonement for me. What's so powerful to me is, is, is I see this man that as he takes in this lamb being slain, which is God's picture to us, that God's going to make atonement, that he's going to cover our sins and make us clean, that this man is so overcome that God could actually make atonement for me, Joe Scumbag. God, let that be for someone even like me. For me. When's the last time you prayed that way? With tears in your eyes and, a, and an ache in your gut. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Whenever Jesus tells a parable, he wants his hearers to find their place in the story. Who are you? Are you the Pharisee? Are you the tax collector? Here's this Pharisee, this devoted man of God, yet he misses it. He's so overcome with his own self-righteousness that he's oblivious to his desperate need 
that God would atone for him. And yet this tax collector can't even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast in utter anguish over his sin. God, let that please be for me, a sinner. It'd be like in our service during communion, which is our time in the service, where we celebrate a lamb sacrifice to make atonement for us. It would, it would be like during that time if someone just came forward and fell face down. God, please, please, let this be for me. And then Jesus gives us the punchline to the whole story in verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified, righteous. He got the justice from the great judge. And probably even more shocking to Jesus' audience is not that he got it, but that the Pharisee didn't. I want to say this morning, for those of us who are in Christ, yes, we have been given the status of sons. Yes, we, we, we are the bride of Christ to, to, to the most and greatest Prince Charming there ever was. But the moment that we start exalting ourselves and stop thinking of ourselves like a powerless widow or as sinners in desperate need of God's grace, we're in great danger of missing it. God doesn't do pride. He doesn't do it. And that's why Jesus ends this. He says, the humble will be exalted. And with God, the exalted will be humbled. Paul went through this whole journey. Paul was this Pharisee. But his eyes were open to Christ and in seeing Christ and who Christ is and what Christ did for him, all of a sudden he saw himself as a tax collector. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, he says, here's a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am, not I was, I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might be displayed and his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Listen, he is coming again. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you want to stand before the king of the universe and know that on that day, he's going to side with you. He's going to stand with you. He's going to vindicate you. And you come to him the way he comes to us. The king of the universe came and he still comes to us humble 
He comes poor. He comes as a servant. Likewise, we are to come to him. Like this widow. Humble and poor. And like this tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we do have communion today. Which, as I already said, is the high point in our service when we celebrate the Lamb of God slain to make atonement for us. And what that screams at me is, yep, I'm that lost, that the king of the universe had to do that, but it also screams at me, yep, Rod, you're that loved. That loved. He's glad to do it. Jesus invites sinners to the table. He eats and drinks with sinners. So this morning, I invite anyone to come to eat and drink Jesus. But only do it with the kavanah of this tax collector. Let's pray. God the Pharisee is alive in all of us. The default mode of our hearts is to trust ourselves, to do things in our strength. And the very thing that works so well in our world is the very thing that works against our relationship with you. This morning I pray, God, that all of us, that you would put your finger on the idols in our lives, the things that we would call our currency, that we trust in to make ourselves acceptable, whether it be our money, whether it be our righteousness, whether it be our spirituality, whether it be any label we have, whether it be our looks and our appearance, whatever it is, God, that we would lay it all down to the point in our hearts where we feel like a widow, powerless, And like this tax collector, utterly spiritually bankrupt. And may we eat and drink your life and your atonement and your mercy.